This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello and welcome once more to the program. That is, if you've joined us before. If this is your first time, also welcome, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll find some benefit in our discussion. We've been discussing a text by the Tibetan master Namkar Pell, titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, which, as the title suggests, is on training the mind, which means changing its usual negative and harmful habits into positives. As far as Tibetan Buddhism is concerned, the greatest positive you can encourage in your mind is bodhicitta, the wish or intention to attain enlightenment so you can be of the greatest possible benefit to other living beings. So Namkarpal's teaching focuses on that and how to develop it. Part of the process is what the text calls an integrated practice of a whole lifetime, and that includes five powers. The power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and finally the power of acquaintance. We've gone through the first four powers, ending last week's program with an article titled Buddhism's Higher Power by Hannah Tennant Moore, in which she talked about what prayer means to her. For many of us, Buddhists included, prayer means going to some higher power with requests for some improvement in our life or some goal we want realized. Please make sure I pass my exam. Please let me win lotto so I can buy a new house, or whatever. Please make Joe love me, and so on. It doesn't matter whether it's addressed to God, Buddha, or the spirit of a local tree. The aim is still the same. Some kind of manipulation. But such intercessory prayers are extremely limited, and who knows whether they even come to the notice of whatever deity they're aimed at. Focused on the happiness of just this life, they're not what Pal means when talking about the power of prayer. He is more concerned with invoking whatever power prayer has to awaken the minds of all beings into bodhicitta, so that the intention we have to attain enlightenment for others' sake will constantly grow and never decline. This is obviously infinitely more beneficial than any prayer to win lotto. In line with that, then, Let's now invoke the power of prayer to align our discussion today with bodhicitta motivation so that this program may help us to realize enlightenment to benefit all living beings. As we usually do, let's take a moment to reflect on this. Thank you. When we pray, we usually have something we pray to. I guess it may be of some use just to send a prayer out into the sky, hoping that some higher power will hear and act on it, but that doesn't seem to be a particularly useful or even intelligent strategy. We may pray to God, but then we have to know what we mean by that very loaded word. Is it some amorphous being we put our faith in, satisfied with the injunction not to think about its nature, but just to have faith? To me, that doesn't seem any more fruitful than praying to the sky. If we are praying to God, 
we should at least have some idea of the nature of the one we're invoking. Otherwise, who knows what will present itself to us as God to answer or not answer, as the case may be, our prayer. In Buddhism, of course, we do not believe there is some ultimate God being out there that we can send our requests to. The ultimate is a state of existence that lies at the core of our own existence, and praying is a way of invoking that state within us. Hannah Tennant Moore calls it a seed of constant presence and openness that underlies all forms and connects all life. She says that reaching out to this not only implies being at peace with the present moment, whatever it brings, but, and I quote, embracing all circumstances with the belief that pure being is the true way of the world. It's putting one's faith in one's own ultimate nature, which manifests, as Pema Chodron describes, as the seed of spaciousness, freshness, openness and relaxation. In that state, all is possible and all is accepted. I pray not that God will manipulate events to spare me from a particular situation, writes Tennant Moore, but that whatever arises will bring me closer to that part of myself that is never anxious, never afraid. And also, she writes, the hopelessness of praying for specific things gives way to the vast, impersonal hope that grace is present in any circumstance. Prayer means accepting that I don't know what's good for me or for the world, but I trust that goodness exists anyway. The real prayer, she suggests, is realizing that we're all, all living beings, not just humans, in a state of dissatisfaction and suffering. And with this realization, sitting with an attitude of open, honest yearning for a different way of being. Now isn't this approaching bodhicitta? Wanting to be forever free of our universal dis-ease so that we can guide others to be also free. She suggests that the key to this is openly admitting and coming to terms with not only our triumphs, but also all our shortcomings, our failures and our human frailties. She channels Thomas Merton in pointing out that the original sin is not disobedience, it is hiding, not re revealing our dark side as well as our light. Only when we fully reveal ourselves to deepest being as we are, without excuses, can we really access the power of prayer. Tennant Moore writes, If I allow myself to believe my prayers will be answered, I can't help but concentrate all my desires into one great yearning for a peace that, as Thomas Merton puts it, is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind and the brutality of our own will. Pema Children explains this further. She says in her book, The Wisdom of No Escape, We see how beautiful and wonderful and amazing things are, and we see how caught up we are. It isn't that one is the bad part and one is the good part, but that it's a kind of interesting, smelly, rich, fertile mess of stuff. When it's all mixed up together, it's us, humanness. This is what we are here to see for ourselves. Both the brilliance and the suffering are here all the time. They interpenetrate each other. For a fully enlightened being, the difference between what is neurosis and what is wisdom is very hard to perceive because somehow the energy underlying both of them is the same. The basic creative energy of life bubbles up and courses through all of existence. 
It can be experienced as open, free, unburdened, full of possibility, energizing. Or this very same energy can be experienced as petty, narrow, stuck, caught. The basic point of it all is just to learn to be extremely honest and also wholehearted about what exists in your mind. Thoughts, emotions, bodily sensations, the whole thing that adds up to what we call me or I. Nobody else can really begin to sort out for you what to accept and what to reject in terms of what wakes you up and what makes you fall asleep. No one else can really sort out for you what to accept, what opens up your world and what to reject, what seems to keep you going round and round in some kind of repetitive misery. Hannah Tennant Moore thinks that to get to the point of realization, we have to surrender everything that we think of as me, the body and mind that I take for myself. Which may just be another way of being, as Pema Chodron puts it, extremely honest and wholehearted about what exists within us. Tennant Moore says, The posture of true prayer is for me collapse. My mind and body give up. I don't know where to turn, what to do. Meditation seems impossible. There's no way to reason myself out of a bad situation. This collapse, to stay put instead of running, is the first moment of healing. It is kneeling with an arrow in the center of the heart, willing to accept help in any form, not only the one I want. I will take even this pain as a sign of help, since I no longer know what is good for me. I will not wait until I am better to show up fully for my life. Here I am. Help. So that is our exploration of the power of prayer, the fourth power. Now the fifth and last power is the power of acquaintance. Namkau Pal writes, We should familiarize ourselves at all times and in all circumstances solely with the actual meditations as they were explained above. The guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life says, The childish work for their own benefit, the Buddhas work for the benefit of others. Just look at the difference between them. If we familiarize ourselves with this practice and maintain the conditions for doing so, we will gain perfection. As the saying goes, there is nothing that does not become easier with acquaintance. And then he quotes Geshe Chitkawa with, This mind that is full of faults has one great quality, that it does whatever it is taught. And that is what Nam Pell writes on the fifth power. It might seem a bit confusing, but His Holiness the Dalai Lama in his commentary has this to say. The fifth is the force of habituation. We need to build up as much as possible the habit of always thinking in these positive ways. It is extremely important when we approach any type of spiritual training that we try to build it up as a beneficial habit. Things don't happen just at once. It's a matter of building up increasing familiarity so that gradually we find our minds and hearts going in a positive direction. It is important to sustain our effort over extremely long periods of time, not to think in terms of just weeks or months of intensive practice. It doesn't work like that. Instead, we must think of lifetime after lifetime to build up these positive habits over a significant period of time and in this way gradually improve. Because since beginningless time we've acted under the influence of disturbing attitudes and we've acted in an unruly manner without any self-control 
it's not going to be easy to eliminate these negative habits. It will require long, sustained effort to gradually reverse the tide of how our minds and hearts work and to get them to go in a positive direction. And so it's necessary to be patient, to think in the long term, in order to habituate our hearts and minds to positive habits. If we concentrate our efforts over only one week or one month of intensive practice, when we don't make any progress we'll get very discouraged. And this will be very damaging in the long run to our development from lifetime to lifetime. On the other hand, if we think in a more practical manner of improving from lifetime to lifetime, we won't get discouraged or have unreasonable expectations, and thus we'll develop in a more sustainable manner. As Geshe Chikawa said, this mind that is full of faults has one great good quality. However it is trained, it becomes like that. In other words, it is possible to train our mind so that we can change our habits and become a better person. That is the great quality of the mind. That's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Now building up positive habits is the whole crux of the matter, isn't it? And it sounds so easy to do. Just concentrate on the positive and don't act out or give in to the negative. But as anybody who has tried to do this knows, it's a lot harder than it sounds. We're so familiar with our bad habits that we seem to return to them by default, even when we have little to no intention of doing so. We tell ourselves, I'm not going to do that again, and we may even be convinced we won't. But soon enough, we're back in the thick of doing just what we promised not to do. That is why His Holiness says we have to be patient with ourselves and take a long view of our practice. I came across an interesting blog on cultivating wholesome habits that last on a website trustinginbuddha.co.uk. I couldn't find any information on the author, Paul Lockie, but I think it's worthwhile including his blog on the show today. It starts off with a verse by Frank Outlaw that goes like this, Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. The blogger then writes, I love the, the above quote. I don't suppose the writer had Buddhism in mind when he made this observation, but for me it sums up what I believe to be the Buddha's purpose in teaching the Dharma, to enable us all to overcome self-created suffering by cultivating skillful mental, verbal and bodily actions. We study and we practice, as the Buddha advised, in order to overcome the stresses of birth, aging, sickness and death. Basically, what our study and practice of Dharma is doing is developing skillful habits and a healthy sense of self in order to stop any negative karmas arising from an unhealthy sense of self. Eventually, even our healthy sense of self will no longer be needed because we've all realized the Buddha's three characteristics of existence impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and ownerlessness, or selflessness. That's anicca, dukkha, and anatta. At this point, we no longer create suffering because all of our actions are aligned with reality and our attitude of universal compassion, friendliness, joyful appreciation, and equanimity is indomitable. However, until that happy day, we're always likely to create suffering for ourselves and others. We need, therefore, a positive self-image and skillful behaviors that require little, if any, conscious effort to perform. 
we're less likely to suffer if we can build appropriate wholesome habits that affirm rather than contradict our self-image. It's pretty common knowledge that not-self is a core teaching of the Buddha. And so it may seem wrong for me to be talking about creating a self-identity that's healthy or ideal or otherwise. However, as far as I'm aware, not-self doesn't mean no-self. Moreover, I very much doubt that no-self is the actual experience of people who are neither brain-damaged, dreaming, blinded by dogma, drunk on intoxicants, experimenting with jhanas, or doing anything else that might trigger hallucinations. Even the Buddha, I suspect, would have continued to experience self-sensations after awakening to them as impermanent and unsatisfactory and illusory, along with all the other conditioned phenomena. But unlike the vast majority of people who cling blindly to their self-image because they wrongly believe it to be their existential truth, the Buddha knew when a self-identity was useful and when it wasn't. He was able, therefore, to skillfully teach healthy self-strategies and not-self-strategies so that we might be liberated from the stresses of birth, aging, sickness and death. Now, if we want to get on the path to nibbana or freedom from suffering as the Buddha advises, we need to drop unskillful behaviors and replace them with wholesome new alternatives. And for that, we need to start believing new things about ourselves, preferably things that are based upon reliable observations and experiences. Since Darwin, the popular stereotype of humanity has been one of a globally dominant tribal species composed of fiercely aggressive individuals all genetically programmed for a self-serving life of reproduction and pleasure-seeking. I suppose it's understandable given that many of us were born in one of the bloodiest centuries in recorded human history. But this narrative is hardly conducive to peace and goodwill, is it? Yet it's what we're being asked to believe when media corporations run popular science stories about our evolutionary hard wiring for conflicting behaviours, like altruism and greed, for example. And more often than not, there'll be a proper neuroscientist somewhere pouring cold water on them. For me personally, the most insightful view of human nature is contained within the Four Noble Truths Sutta that the Buddha taught around 2,500 years ago. When the Buddha is explaining the arising and cessation of dukkha and the practice that puts an end to dukkha, essentially he is viewing humanity as a cooperative of interdependent beings with a tendency for creating suffering by clinging to delusions, but capable nevertheless of attaining freedom from suffering by developing morality, concentration and wisdom. It seems to me that we'll be more likely to cultivate the kinds of wholesome habits that the Buddha recommended, like generosity, compassion, mindfulness, etc., if we can align our own self-identity to his realistic optimist narrative of humanity. Under the heading Cultivating Good Habits, he then quotes James Clear with this, The reason why it's so hard to stick to new habits is that we often try to achieve a performance or appearance-based goal without changing our identity. Most of the time, we try to achieve results before proving to ourselves that we have the identity of the type of person we want to become. It should be the other way around. Paul Lockie continues, I have to confess that most of my habits were required years ago and they developed without me giving much thought to them. Since making my decision to follow the Dharma, however, I've been striving to cultivate wholesome habits 
and to gradually implement lifestyle changes in order to make simple conscious living more possible. To this end, I've consulted numerous sources of information, but the above quote serves as a good nutshell explanation of what needs to happen if we're going to do this kind of work successfully. Just so we better understand what identity-based goals, performance-based goals and appearance-based goals are, let's imagine that we're working on developing our habit of generosity. We can say that our sense of generosity, I always give to people in need, is our identity-based goal. If we're aiming to do charitable works, I help out at the youth club two evenings a week, that would be our performance-based goal. And if we're honest, we'd like our efforts to be recognized and appreciated by others. Thanks, you made a real difference to the community, and that would be our appearance-based goal. According to CLEAR, we're more likely to achieve results when we focus on internal identity goals rather than external performance or appearance goals. If we want to establish a new behavior, then we should focus on becoming someone who believes they'll get it done. Our intentional actions are powered primarily by the belief that it's possible to do them. So if we lack the fuel of conviction, it's unlikely that strength of will or even sticks and carrots will propel us on towards the far shore of attainment. So with regard to developing generosity, we need to believe in our self-image of a moral and generous person, and performing small acts of kindness on a regular basis is by far the most reliable way of sustaining that belief. It doesn't matter much what we choose to do. We can be cheering our co-workers with cups of tea or coffee, helping the homeless by buying copies of The Big Issue, volunteering to assist in a charity shop on Saturdays, or anything else that's appropriate and doable and requires some kind of meaningful sacrifice. The important thing is that we keep on repeating these small kindnesses to keep our sense of generosity and our actual performances in alignment because we'll be suffering whenever gaps or contradictions or discrepancies start showing. We tend to suffer a lot when we're forced to admit that we're slacking or we no longer believe our own publicity. For the generosity habit to stick, we therefore need to make it an automatic behavior because relying on motivation or willpower will fail if we are distracted or we're simply not in the mood. The effort required can be daunting if we focus on the end results, but we're more likely to make our chosen habit stick if we commit to a smaller, manageable step. For example, if we want to make a habit of meditating daily, we should commit to meditating for just 10 minutes to begin with. If we want to slim down, we should start our healthier eating habit with a daily commitment to cooking just one meal using fresh ingredients instead of eating out or relying on processed packaged foods. If we want to write a novel, we should commit to writing just one paragraph a day. Committing to these kinds of baby steps isn't so hard. We'll probably do them quite easily and chances are we won't stop there, we'll carry on and do more than we initially intended to do. Committing to small baby steps is a good way to ensure that we do the work that needs to be done over and over until the new habit sticks. He then goes on to mention six additional tips he has found to be useful and points to S.J. Scott's book How to Form a Habit in Eight Easy Steps. His first tip is focus upon cultivating just one new habit. He says, if we try to develop two or more new habits together, 
will most likely fail to establish any of them. For example, when trying to lose excess weight, it's very tempting to embark upon a crash diet and a punishing exercise regime only to feel bored and frustrated and ready to throw in the towel soon afterwards. Not only are we spreading our willpower too thinly, but in addition to cultivating new behavior patterns, we need, of course, to be getting on with the rest of our life, and it all takes time and energy. So we should have patience and concentrate on building just one new habit until it becomes an established part of our character. Then we can work on developing another new habit. The second tip is commit to the new habit for 30 days. He says, a habit develops from repetitive behavior. The more times we repeat a behavior, the more likely it will become habitual. A month is probably the minimum length of time for any new habit to become established. But in any case, it's a convenient yardstick for measuring progress. For example, if we start daily meditation, we might reasonably expect after 30 days to notice some improvement in our ability to sit still and follow the breath for 10 minutes. Some new habits will obviously take up more of our time and energy than others. A lot will depend on our personal circumstances as well as the type of new habit we're trying to build. To establish a new habit, we need to commit as much time and energy as we can consistently apply for as long as it takes. Then the third tip is attach the new habit to one that's already established. Lockie said it was easy to start a morning meditation practice because he already had the habit of getting up as soon as he awoke. So he just attached his new meditation habit to the regular one of getting up quickly. Now it doesn't matter when he wakes, he meditates before doing anything else. Then he says, plan for problems. Changing conditions will always bring challenges to our routines and he quotes lack of time, illness or injury, adverse weather, limited space or reduced finances. The best defense, he claims, is to use the baby step approach I've already described because that way, if we do get blocked by circumstances, we're still likely to do something rather than do nothing. Being flexible also helps. But if the new habit is not taking hold, he says, we have to find out what is blocking it and try not to let that cause happen again, for repeating it will just create another bad habit. Says Lockie, an occasional lapse here and there isn't going to matter a great deal in the long run, but if someone or something keeps getting in the way of the task we've set ourselves, then we need to take evasive action to avoid getting stopped permanently. Become accountable is his next tip. We can incentivize our efforts by declaring our intentions to others and asking for feedback, he says. Knowing that our trusted friends, colleagues and family members are monitoring our progress will serve as a good motivator to keep us on track. His final tip is reward progress. He writes, it's important to recognize and reward any progress made because whether we realize it or not, the expectation of being rewarded has driven us from the moment we were born to repeat many kinds of behaviors over and over until they became habitual. And we can utilize this natural process to our advantage when we are consciously trying to build a new habit. So we should treat ourselves by doing something we love whenever we reach or surpass our target. It doesn't really matter what reward we choose, so long as it brings some harmless fun to our routine and helps us to stick with it. So, there's a quick manual 
and how to cultivate good habits. But now we must say goodbye for our time is up. Thanks for being with us today and please do tune in again next week. As we go, let's dedicate any positive potential from our time together to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. Thank you and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.